Hey there, I'm Osman Faruqi and welcome to The Culture, a weekly show from Schwartz Media where we take a deep dive into the latest in the world of music, streaming, TV, film and everything in arts and entertainment. Today on the show, we're going to be talking about the world's newest pop star, Olivia Rodrigo, the singer-songwriter behind the biggest album in the world right now. Sour, Rodrigo's debut, hit number one on the Billboard charts this week. And in doing so, it actually dethroned Cardi B's record, Invasion of Privacy, which since 2018 had held the record for the most album sales in its first week since the current Billboard charts were rejigged to include streaming. So Sour has absolutely smashed its sales numbers. It's charted right around the world, including here in Australia, where it also debuted at number one on the Aria charts. And even if you haven't heard Sour, the album, there is absolutely no way you've missed Rodrigo's huge single, Driver's License. And I know we weren't perfect, but I've never felt this way for no one. And I just can't imagine how you could be so okay now that I'm gone. If there's one track that's defined 2021 so far, it has to be this one. The already iconic breakup song has already seen Rodrigo compared to pop sensations like Taylor Swift and Lord. But who is Olivia Rodrigo and why has a teenage girl's breakup album resonated with so many people of all ages? Does her enormous success say something particular about the way pop stars are manufactured right now in this current era, or has it always been like this? To, to help me answer all of these questions, I'm joined by the wonderful Shard D'Souza. Shard is a music critic for the Saturday Paper, Fader Magazine, and Pitchfork, and one of my favourite music writers. Shard, thank you so much for joining me on The Culture. Honoured to be here, as ever. When I was thinking about doing an Olivia Rodrigo episode, it took me maybe like half a second to message you and say, come in, we need to talk about this right now. And then you immediately reconsidered when I sent a five-page long stream of consciousness (laughs) rant about everything I think about this album and the phenomenon. Yeah, I, I reconsidered it by saying, let's not wait until next week, let's do it right now. And that's obviously how we've ended up here, ready to unpack the phenomenon that is Olivia Rodrigo and and the context from which she's emerged. Maybe we can just start by sharing our top line views on the record Sour that dropped a couple of weeks ago. I didn't have high expectations for this album. I thought that, you know, the driver's license, her debut single was so big. And I thought this could be something like Old Town Road, right? Where it's sort of like lands and it shakes up the culture and it's big, but then there's a long wait to the album. The album is not really that good. It's a bit mixed. I thought that the album actually was okay. It was better than I thought. It's getting a lot of props from most critics out there, a lot of uh, people comparing it to Taylor Swift, to Lord. There's a certainly I can detect some of those vibes, can also detect some pop punk influences, I think, that sort of predate both of those artists. What's your general vibe on Sour? I think Olivia Rodrigo is extremely talented. Um, my interest was peaked with Driver's License and Deja Vu. I find them a bit too reminiscent of some other things in pop culture. Um, but mostly my uh, interests lie in the kind of reaction to Sour. Like I listen to the record and I, I hear a really competent, really quite nice debut pop album. I think it hits all the marks that a debut pop album should. Um, and I think 
you know, I think she's a wonderful talent. <laughs> I get you're smiling as you're saying that. So I'm very curious as to where this, because I feel like there's a butt coming on. Yeah. I think she's a wonderful talent that a lot of... Don't hold back. I think, well, I mean, we'll get into this. <laughs> I don't want to just, you know, uh, scream for 10 minutes. But uh, <laughs> um, I think the album is great. I think it's really nicely produced. I think it takes a lot of indie influences and kind of makes them mainstream in a way that I find quite pleasant. But I find it really interesting, the reaction that's been had to the album, like a lot of millennials in particular holding her up as some kind of like master auteur, calling the album kind of revolutionary or like so relatable or so cool or whatever, um, which like, you know, maybe it is relatable or whatever, but I think revolutionary does a lot of disservice to Olivia Rodrigo. And I think it says a lot about where we are culturally in terms of what people feel forced to kind of like do with pop as it emerges nowadays. Okay, I like the way that you've signposted all of this because I think there is going to be a lot to get into. And I'm personally excited for you to yell at me because as a a 30-year-old, I did find elements of this um, breakup album kind of relatable (laughs) coming from a 17-year-old teenage girl. So that's going to be a lot of fun to chat about. But I think before we get into the ins and outs and the the kind of lyrical complexity or otherwise of this album, maybe just to bring everyone up to speed, because I'm sure most of the people listening to this show have heard of Olivia Rodrigo, have heard Driver's License. It is one of, if not the biggest tracks of the year. I got my driver's license last week, just like we always talked about. Cause you were so excited for me to finally drive up to your house. But today I Its influence on the culture, I think it's fair to say, has been dominant this year. It's been massive. Like it's been truly inescapable on a kind of visibility level in terms of pop artists who are kind of like at the forefront of the culture at the moment. She and Driver's License and Deja Vu are definitely kind of like right there. Um, She just had her second number one debut with Good For You. So, yeah, people are definitely really, really interested. And it's quite interesting. I think I was kind of on the back foot with her to begin with because she was kind of being sold to me as something extremely revolutionary. Mm. And then you kind of sift around a little in her history and it is very clearly a tale as old as time, which is a star who has been on one or multiple Disney properties. In her case, it's a Disney Plus TV show called High School Musical, the musical, the series, which is a very meta kind of TV show about, it's a mockumentary about a school that is filmed at the school where they made High School Musical. um, And the students of that school mount a production of High School Musical and it's being chronicled in a series. So very meta, but... Yeah, so she is a star from a Disney property, amassed millions of fans and millions of listeners through her songs for that soundtrack. It is a musical. And then was recording these kind of songs and then Driver's License dropped and it was instantly a hit because, you know, she already had millions of fans. And so that's where you get this kind of like element of quote-unquote virality that I, from the beginning, I, I would maybe argue that it wasn't true virality, because Mm. I wonder whether you can call it that if someone already has the biggest platform in the world, that being the Disney media empire. Mm. And also because we've seen it so many times before, you know, Miley Cyrus, Selena Gomez, Demi Lovato, the Jonas Brothers, Ariana Grande, all 
children's entertainers who springboarded from their kind of like millions plus viewership into instant success hits. And it's a very old model of stardom. So in in many ways, Olivia Rodrigo is this very kind of old-fashioned property, sorry for lack of a better term, but, you know. So it is vertical integration in the truest, purest, most beautiful sense. Not beautiful, obviously, but, like, (laughs) were a Disney executive, I'd be like, wow, I did a great job here. Let's take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll dig a little bit deeper into what makes Driver's Licence such a smash. So what did you make of Driver's Licence? I personally, I thought it was like a fine song. Like I kind of understood why people appreciate it. For me, what was interesting about that song when I think about the first sort of breakthrough singles from other artists of that of that sort of Disney slash Nickelodeon vibe is that it felt a bit less bubblegum pop, a bit less. I think you're describing an artist that their profile and their their place in the culture is very manufactured. And often in the past, their music has been as well. But I think with Olivia Rodrigo, the song Driver's Licence felt more organic and real. And I think that's perhaps why it might have connected with a lot of people. I hear a lot of people say that they appreciate the specificity of Olivia Rodrigo's songwriting, particularly on relationships. But in a way, I kind of think Driver's Licence is a song that if you've had any romantic like experience in your life, there are elements there that you connect to. Why do you think it became such a huge, huge, huge hit beyond just, you know, the sort of manufacturing virality that you were talking about? I think it's a really well-written, really good song. The influences that it draws from, I think it kind of cannibalizes a lot of things that I personally really like. So I find it almost like an uncanny valley kind of thing to listen mm. to it. But I think the the writing of the song is really great. I mean, people love stuff that's confessional. Like, mm. it's a much cleaner, much nicer version of the kind of, like, really intense emotionality of a lot of pop music these days. Um, and then the the palette is simultaneously very familiar while being very exciting to a lot of people who maybe haven't been kind of, like, looking into the kind of, like, most mainstream echelons of indie music over the past few years. So you have this kind of, like, interesting phenomenon where it sounds like, you know, a mixture between, like, Green Light and Perfect Places and Rider in the Dark and Hard Feelings from Lord's Melodrama. Um, Like, just enough bits of each song to sound unfamiliar. It sounds a little like Phoebe Bridges. It sounds a little like, you know, any number of things that have been streamed really well, I hate to say it, over the past few years, but have never been combined in this specific way. Hmm. You could counter that by saying, you know, she only wrote it and produced it with one other person. But, I mean, she is true, like, pure Gen Z, a generation where a lot of influence comes from algorithms or from vibe. You know, this is a, a typical song of what we might call main character, which is a new kind of, like, genre slash phenomenon slash category of culture that draws from this kind of palette and this kind of vibe. But yeah, I mean, I think it, at the end of the day, it is a great song. Like, you know, people connect with it in the same way they connect with, yeah, like pop punk or something in that, like, 
even if something's really, really specific, the emotionality of it, everyone can relate to that feeling. I think that's all right. And I think the other thing that's been interesting to hear her talk about herself is how deliberately she wrote and structured the song for her audience, particularly on TikTok. We, we know that TikTok is a huge part of how music is sourced and found and surfaced and consumed and shared right now. We know that most labels have people whose job it is is to scour TikTok looking for breakout songs. And we know that artists and producers are writing songs to be used in a particular way on TikTok. And Olivia Rodrigo, as you said, as a pure distilled Gen Z person understands that. Driver's License is this big, melodic, heartfelt, emotional breakup song uh, that depending on where, how deep the YouTube rabbit hole you go down, is either a very specific song about her co-star on High School Musical, the musical, the series Joshua Bassett, uh, or a song that has nothing to do with Joshua Bassett uh, and is just written about feelings of love and a heartache uh, and a heartbreak. But, you know, let's go down the rabbit hole for a second. So Olivia releases this song, Driver's License, where she talks about a relationship ending, about someone that she had very, very strong feelings for, leaving her for someone who is a bit older than her with blonde hair. And you're probably with that blonde girl who always made me doubt. Most of the commentary has suggested that it was Joshua Bassett, her co-star on the show. They were never publicly confirmed as a couple, but Joshua Bassett himself released a song soon after Driver's License uh, called Lie, 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 which seems to be taking aim at... (laughs) (laughs) Seems to be taking aim at a character kind of like Olivia who's publicly criticised the breakup. And and that itself is sort of contained. But then there's an extra layer on top of that, which is the the actress that Joshua Bassett himself has now been romantically linked to, Sabrina Carpenter, also a, a Disney star. Um, she has released a song called Skin, where she also seems to take aim at an Olivia-type character who has written a song about her as a villain. And she does happen to be a few years older than Olivia and does have blonde hair. You're telling it how you see it. The truth is whatever you decide. Some people will believe it. And some will read in between the lines. You're putting me in the spotlight. But I've been under it all my life. So there is this whole, in addition to all the manufactured virality you were talking about, there is this extra layer of like music industry, acting world, cultural drama. I mean, it has happened in recent memory. I mean, I think in 2013 or 2014, we had Selena Gomez releasing Revival and Justin Bieber releasing Purpose. Justin Timberlake and Britney Spears had a sort of similar thing with... Yes, 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 yes. This is obviously not a new thing, but it's the fact that it is like a well-trodden path suggests that someone, whether it's the artists, their managers, the labels, all of the above, know that there is, you know, there's something that you can create here that certainly helps you be part of the zeitgeist. I think the the salacious quality of what went down or didn't go down between Olivia and Joshua is definitely why a lot of people kind of tuned into this and is definitely why people are so interested. But, I mean, 
talking about it makes me feel like decrepit and old. Like I, I'm like, it's no it's a like savage burn on me. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to. Yeah. I mean, it's you know, it's your job to research this stuff so we can talk about it. Yeah, that's right. I'm paid to do this. Yeah, that's you the are paid I'm to do it. this. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, but like until the point at which I'm paid to find out what Joshua Bassett did or did not do, I'm like, let's leave that to the dominion of people who can't drink yet. Cool, let's take a quick break before we get stuck into Olivia's debut album, Sour. Okay, let's talk Sour. Um, As I said at the start of, of our chat, I actually quite enjoyed the album. I mean, I think I had low expectations because of uh, just what I thought, you know, delivering one song that you pour your heart and soul into is one thing, but being able to replicate that over nine tracks is is a different feat. I think there's varied production. There's sounds, as we've discussed, from that are very reminiscent of Lord. There, there is there is bits of uh, songwriting and singing that remind me of uh, Taylor Swift, particularly kind of both you know, early eras of Taylor Swift and more recent eras that are a bit more experimental and even that kind of like uh, sing-talking, almost rap uh, on this album. Uh, there's pop-punk as well. There's there's variation there musically, even if not always thematically. W- yeah, what, what made you, I guess, like, if not love, this record? I like it. I think it's really very tasteful. Um, I think there's not much filler, which is really, really commendable mm. for a debut pop album where it's kind of, it's designed to be very grab bag. It's designed to be like, what are people going to connect with? Okay, let's focus on this for the next record. I think Driver's License, as I said, I think is really well written and really nice, but I don't really like it. I love Deja Vu. Mm. Do you get Deja Vu? <laughs> that almost like breakbeat that comes in, I find really exciting. And I thought it was just going to be a direct Lord rip for the whole thing. And then it wasn't when that breakbeat came in. So I think that song is really beautifully constructed and I find it really indelible and, like, I love the way her voice sounds on it as compared to maybe some other spots on the record where she does this kind of, like, um, you know, Lord-ish, like, Billy-ish, like, low growl thing. Good for you, I guess you moved on really easily. You found a new girl and it only took a couple weeks. Remember when you said that you wanted to... But, but like, I loved Paramore when I was in primary school. So, like, Good For You obviously brings, like, memories. And I think, you Yeah, know, totally. When people talk about really connecting with this album, I think they mean it sounds like stuff I really liked when I was a teenager or whatever. So you think there is a nostalgia element into people's appreciation? Oh, unquestionably. Like, it sounds like so many different things. And I think the fact that it's not, like, it's not the same as, like, hearing a cover or whatever because it's it's not just, like, reference. It's, like, recreation. Mm. And so, like, on Good For You, you have a direct recreation of Misery Business. On Deja Vu, you have Rider in the Dark. On Driver's License, as I said, you have these things. Um, and an interpolation on One Step Forward, Three Steps Back. From yeah, yeah, you have a Taylor Swift interpolation right there. So it's it's kind of, you know, it, the 
the recreation ranges from like blatant and credited to kind of like more obfuscated. I think there's this kind of newish phenomenon where people right now, I mean, the world is really hard. People want comfort listens, but find it really hard to acknowledge that something is maybe not necessarily like high art or whatever. Mm. And so then you, they listen to Sour and they're like, oh, like this makes you feel really good. Like it must be like the best shit ever. Mm. And it's actually just really familiar. And I think you, you also see that. I mentioned Phoebe Bridges just before, like, Last year we had her album Punisher, like, you know, people loved it. But, like, yeah, I think this writer Pete Tosiello put it really well in this essay for this um, substack called Dirt. Like, it has all the hallmarks of streamable, like, chill music. Like, it's something that feeds very well into an algorithm. It's something you can put on repeat for hours and not get sick of because it just kind of blends in. Mm. Like, it's very accessible. It's very easy. It's very soft. Um, and it's almost, you know, we, we've talked about the TikTokification of music, but the other thing here is I think the, the Spotify algorithm, the way that it works is that you could easily finish this album and then Spotify would just send you on to songs like this. And because there is, it's sort of like this distillation of so many different contemporary sounds, you wouldn't even necessarily number. feel like you're in a different world, right? Totally. And there's an infinite number of songs that could come next in the algorithm. And I think... Yeah, this also speaks to people's kind of like valorization of this record also speaks to this pretty new phenomenon where I think people who maybe once would have been considered tastemakers or critics or whatever um, are seeing that algorithms are slowly superseding their jobs and therefore when they kind of like get an inkling that something will be really elevated and popular popularized by the algorithm – they'll kind of like step forward and say it's the best thing ever just so it doesn't look like they're behind. Mm. Can I can I ask you about um, the themes of this album? And I've got to say there is an element of discomfort I felt listening to some of these tracks. I'm thinking particularly tracks like, like Traitor or Good For You or Enough For You, uh, which are about a teenager's experience of, of heartbreak and love and loss. And... I think that discomfort comes from the fact that, like, I'm not a teenager. <laughs> I'm not a teenage girl, uh, but I still find the music compelling. I still find those feelings relatable. When I hear someone talk about, you know, I wasn't cheated on, but I still feel betrayed. Uh, and I wonder whether, okay, am I creepy and weird? Or is there, or is part of her appeal that there is this universality to, romance and heartbreak. It doesn't matter if you're 17, 20, 30, 40, 50 years old. The idea of having a relationship and it ending on whatever terms is one that just has always struck a chord and it's why it's such a common theme across art. Yeah, I mean, I think heartbreak music will always be at least a little bit universal. You know, like you have something like Taylor Swift, Fearless, like those songs are incredible, even though they're all about, you know, high school. Um, And I also think in a sense... Um, to be teenaged and to be downtrodden is a wonderful, accessible metaphor to feel adult and downtrodden. Mm. There is something kind of regressed or like regressive about the way I think a lot of people are engaging with this album. I think it speaks to a deep kind of like unease that people are having. Like Mm. I think people really want the kind of like simplicity and the naivety of teenage first love or like high school drama or whatever 
I think it's interesting that it's manifested in this album mm. because there are lines where she's like, oh, you chose another actor. I guess you have a type. And I'm like, is that relatable <laughs> to any of these kind of like, you know, 35-year-olds who work in marketing listening to this album? <laughs> like, And I mean, it is interesting to think of Sour for, I guess, a lot of um, kind of millennial women who maybe were really into pop punk. But aside from, say, Hayley Williams, um, couldn't really find any kind of like female pop punk narrators or vocalists or whatever, um, Olivia Rodrigo kind of like fills that gap in a sense. And so maybe I shouldn't be so harsh on all these people being like, I love this album, I relate. I don't know. But and, and I think it is like she does do some really interesting things with her lyricism, like the way she subverts some tropes. Like there's one song, I can't remember what it's called, where she's kind of, like, comparing herself to, like, these other girls. And then she's like, I know I shouldn't kind of, like, tear them down, but, like, I can't help but feel this way. And I find that element of her songwriting very um, revealing and exciting because I think it's a really hard thing to expose yourself as having the, these kind of feelings of um, emotional ugliness. Mm. And I think that is ultimately why, despite maybe some of the rough edges and some of the... Some of the comparisons that probably do her more harm than good, why this album has cut through, obviously there is this element of, um, you know, having the biggest companies in the world behind you is going to make you sell records no matter how good they are. But the fact that they are pretty good songs, they're written by her, there's a consistency there. So it's this marriage of, I think, something that feels genuine and organic but has this machine to just get it in front of people as well. Totally. And when I say... I find the whole phenomenon kind of frustrating. People are like, oh, but the music's so good. And I'm like, yeah, like the music is good. But that doesn't change the fact that like this is part of Disney's kind of like ongoing project to homogenize everything in culture. And I think we can acknowledge both. And like I feel genuinely insane when I go online or even like so driver's license got added to Triple J. Yeah. Which is like Triple J has historically not added. Mm. It's a very surprising decision. There's so many artists like that that we don't have don't to get, get into. Don't get me the, started because yeah, yeah, yeah. I could talk for hours about what went on there. But anyway, people like to make it their business. People think pop stars are underdogs. People think corporations and major labels are underdogs. And so I'll like log on Twitter and be like, it's pretty like random and fucked up that Olivia Rodrigo got added to Triple J and then literal grown-ups, people who are, like, 10 years older than me, being like, um, you don't want to see, like, a young woman succeeding. And it's like, you think I don't want to see a young woman succeeding? I want, like, a young indie artist to get that slot. Like, I don't want to see the fucking, like, executive. I don't want to see David Geffen getting another, like, million bucks because Olivia Rodrigo is going to win the Hottest 100. Like, literally, these people log on and make it their business to defend people who were literally backed by the biggest media company in the world. And so... Well, two, right? Between Universal and Disney Plus, you've I, got exactly. the two biggest corporations in culture making in the world. Corporations, particularly one like Disney, is controlling and, you know, creating culture. Do you see that happening beyond Olivia and beyond the music ecosystem? Yeah. I mean, it's really interesting because what's happening with Olivia Rodrigo, which is, like, obviously you have quote-unquote indie or alternative sounds being homogenized into this accessible pop package, 
is also quite comparable to what you have happening with Marvel films, mm. which is where Disney locks in these directors who were kind of like indie auteurs, like Kate Shortland, who made Somersault, or Chloe Zhao, who made Nomadland, into these huge contracts where they're kind of like can't make films for maybe like two to four years because of the whole promotion and release cycle. And then they make these films that supposedly have their auteurist mark on them, but then they actually just look exactly like Marvel films. Mm. And then what you have is that Disney has ties to um, all the people who maybe otherwise would be pushing counterculture. And, of course, it is in Disney's best interest that there is no counterculture, that they can control and manipulate what is alternative. So you see it as a deliberate strategy to co-opt those people rather than let them create their own art outside. Exactly, because to have kind of like renegade artists, like I don't want to oversell the kind of radical potential of certain artists, but to like have people making genuinely transgressive art is not part of the kind of like Disney capitalist project. Um, And so when you have people like shilling for Olivia Rodrigo for free, I think it just feeds into this um, kind of like discourse economy where people seem to have less and less critical faculties, you know, like less and less ability to step back and be like, oh, wait a second, like it's in Disney's interest for me, someone who only writes about indie music or whatever, to put Olivia Rodrigo on this Mm. same plane Mm. because it means that everything is kind of in Disney's purview then, every market share. And so I think it's fine and good to love this record, but... I wonder whether people are considering kind of like the corporate interests that lie in them like going online and fighting with people about, you know, Hmm. that Olivia Rodrigo is actually good or Hmm. whatever, Hmm. you know, because like mass culture and pop music will always be elevated and popularized, but, you know, it doesn't always have to be critically valorized in the way that it kind of is happening now. Like I just think it, it says a lot about where we are culturally and I think it sets a lot of dangerous precedents, which, like, not to sound dramatic or whatever, but, you know, it's genuinely not in the cultural interest for Disney to own every property, you know, or own every style or sound. Hmm. I think that is actually a really great note to end what's been a fascinating chat, Shad. Thank you so much for jumping on the culture today. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Culture. We'll be back in your feeds next week. And in the meantime, don't forget to follow us on Instagram at theculture.pod. Let us know if there are any ideas or topics you think we should be covering. You'll be able to see behind-the-scenes pics and some sneak peeks for what we've got coming up on the show in the future weeks ahead. And, look, we'd love it if you could rate and review us. It's a great way to help people discover the show. And if you aren't already following us in your favourite podcast, app, just do it. I'm Osman Faruqi. See you next time. Listener.